Well, it's good to uh, be back with you again, and uh, you guys are gluttons for punishment. As uh, I was asked to return for a fifth Sunday, I had this Sunday open, and and, uh, I was asked to come back, so I'm very honored to come back, but this will be my last Sunday with you. I'm booked for the rest of the spring, pretty much, which is, is fairly typical for my my job, but I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed being here at Moundsville Baptist and being able to lead you in worship and, and have a part uh, in in the worship service. It's always a, a joy to do that. I want you to keep your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 1 and beginning as we will walk through at verse 15 and walk through that passage together. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I'm a pie kind of guy. Uh, I like cake. You know, cake's okay. Uh, chocolate cake especially, but uh, I like cake. But if, if you're asking about desserts, uh, well, really, anything chocolate. I mean, God created chocolate just, you know, I mean, that, anything chocolate's good. But if, if uh, I, I like pie. Now, my favorite pie is coconut meringue pie, not coconut cream. Now, if you're a coconut pie connoisseur, you know the difference. There's coconut meringue, and then there's coconut cream. So I like coconut meringue pie, but then I also like cherry pie. And then I like apple pie. Now, I mean, those are kind of how they come, but but to be honest, there's sometimes, you know, you go and you look, and the cherry pie looks really, really good, and the cherry pie takes priority over the coconut meringue pie. But then if they, you know, if they've got, you know, apple pie a la mode, some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about, and they, they put the brown sugar on top of the apple pie, you know, it kind of, that kind of takes priority. It just, it just depends on, of the mood that we're in. Well, that, that's the problem that we have when we try to set priorities in our life. You know, the intention is, this is going to be first in my life, and, and I'm going to keep that first. But we always get into those situations where if we have kind of a first, second, and third, well, then we've got to choose. Because sometimes the third looks better than the first, or the third is, is more prominent than, than the first, or the third is going to be better than, than the first, and we get our priorities messed up. Well, we do that spiritually. You ever wonder why sometimes we, we really get in the, in the struggle in the Christian life, and part of it is because we try to prioritize the things of the Christian life where we honestly will say, well, you know, Jesus is first in my life. And we believe that. We, we really do mean that. But then we get into a situation of having to choose, and sometimes, you know, it's not that we don't love Jesus anymore, but it really puts us in a difficult situation, and so we sort of slide Jesus into that, that second spot. He's still a priority in our life. We slide Him into that, that second spot, and we allow, you know, friends or sports or society or culture or whatever it is to kind of take that prominent that space in our life and then we wonder, you know, why am I struggling spiritually? Why is it do I do I get myself into trouble? Well what I want to propose to you and present to you this morning is learning not just to make Christ first in our life, but that we make him first and only in our life. A claim that that Christianity makes is that Jesus needs to be the Lord of your life. Uh, Any any number of scriptures uh, deal with that. Romans 10, 
you know, 9 and 10, that, that we must confess that Jesus is Lord. Well, we know that He's to be the Lord of our life, but really what right does the Bible have to make that claim? Not just that He is a Lord, not just that He is one of the Lords, but what He's saying is that He is to be the one and only Lord of my life. Well, what right does the Bible have to make that kind of claim? I mean, anybody can claim that I owe devotion to them. But in order to earn that right of devotion, there has to be something that has been done. I mean, you think about all of the things in our lives that are important. And I'm not talking about sinful. There's a lot of things in our lives that are, that are very important. Why aren't those things more in a priority than, than Christ would be? Why would He demand of me? Why does He deserve the place where He is first, foremost, and only. Well, that's what Colossians chapter 1 is all about. One of the clear designations of Jesus is that He is called preeminent. Now, preeminent is probably not a word that we ever use in, in normal conversations. We don't talk about something being preeminent. And the reason is because for something to be preeminent <coughs> means that Christ would be in a class by himself when it comes to priority. See, the, the struggle I think that all of us have is not making Christ prominent. I think for everybody in here, the reason why we're here is because Christ is prominent in our, in our life. The real struggle is making Christ preeminent. He's important in our lives, but the real question is, is Jesus the Lord of all? And yet, what the Bible teaches us is that because of who Jesus is, that He surpasses all things. And that because of who He is, because of what He has done for us, that He is solely unique. Well then, as we understand that uniqueness, it calls us to make sure that Jesus is first, foremost, unique, Solely and only first in our lives. Well, well, why is it that he should be that? Why should he be, and to use that word preeminent that, that the Bible uses where it speaks here in, in uh, verse 18, it says that in all things he may have preeminence. Why should Christ be preeminent in your life? In what ways do we recognize that? Well, let me share with you from the Bible how that happens is number one is that we must recognize his preeminence because he is God. Go back to verse fifteen. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The image, the to be the image means that he is the exact representation and revelation of who God is. That although God is invisible. And we understand that. We understand that God is spirit. When you say, I want to see who God is and what God is like, you look to Jesus. Jesus is not a plaster of Paris uh, image of, uh, of God or imitation of God. But when you want to know who God is exactly in image, in in essence, in character, in nature, in everything that we say, who is God, all you have to do is to look 
at Jesus. And here's why we know that He is God. It is because He is supreme over creation. Again, look at verse 15. That He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created. Well, when you take that Old Testament verse and you interpret it in light of the New Testament, look at what the New Testament says, we understand that Jesus is that creating God. There's four ways that we understand His supremacy in creation. The first is that He is firstborn. To be firstborn, that particular word does not mean to be born first in the sense that there are others who are born. But to be firstborn, that word actually is a word that deals with with position, rank, or order. So to be firstborn over all creation means that when it comes to the rank and the order of all that creation is, it is not that he was the first person created. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that he holds the highest honor in creation and all that creation is. That he is this creating God, meaning that all of creation belongs to him. To be the firstborn in creation means that all of creation belongs to him because he is supreme in creation. Number two, he's the creator. See, not only is he firstborn in creation, but he is the creator God. To be the creator means that he existed before the creation. It's understanding that Jesus is both the architect of creation, but he is also the mediating agent through which all of creation came. That's what, what he talks about that it, where he says... That by Him all things were created, verse 16, that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, principalities and powers, dominions. All things were created through Him and for Him. All things were created by Him. It is through Christ that everything was created. Number three, He is the goal. Everything was created by Him and everything was created for Him. Now, that, that one verse actually answers, helps to answer for us uh, the question of evil. One of the, one of the issues that philosophers have and, and people who are not following God will have is, well, if God is such a good God, why is there evil? Well, the answer is easy. God is a good God and everything that He created, He said, it is good. The reason why evil exists is because evil begins to exist where God is not allowed to be. Does that make sense? When we push God out, evil exists. Evil exists because of the heart of man. Man has taken the things that God has created and we have turned them into evil. But it also then speaks of the priority of Christ. Everything was created for the good pleasure of Christ. Everything was created for the good pleasure of Christ, even you. It means that everything created began with Christ. Everything that was created will end with Christ. All things spring forth in His command, and all things will return to Him at His command. Why? Because He is the goal. Everything was created for Him. Finally, He is the sustainer. The fourth reason why Jesus is preeminence as God, and we recognize His preeminence as God, is because He is the sustainer. Notice what it says that all things were created through Him and for Him. 
He is before all things. This is verse 17. He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. What that means is that all things hold together. You ever wonder why we've not destroyed ourselves as evil as man is, as evil as human humanity is? It is because, you see, God, Christ as God, is not only the one who brings everything into existence, He not only will hold everything at its end and it belongs to Him, but all in between is about Christ. That He is the sustainer of these things. In, all, in Him, all of these things consist. You can talk to... Uh, Physicists like Stephen Hawking and others who can tell you about the atom and about the protons and electrons that are swirling around in an innumerable amount of space. They can even tell you how they can take an atom and miraculously, in a sense, split that atom, but they cannot tell you why that atom holds together. The reason why the atom holds together is because Christ holds it together. You see, it is in Him that all things consist, all things hold together. And and actually, the way that Paul writes that is that it's not just that he, He holds it together, but He continuously holds all of these things together. And, and that's why... Christ demands our allegiance. That's why He demands our attention. That's why He demands our lives. If you look at it through any other course of, of logic, it would be illogical to come to any other conclusion. That He, if He is this kind of God, which He is, it demands of us that He deserves not just first place, But if He is this preeminent God, it demands that He be in the only place in our lives because who He is. The Bible says, you see, He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. He is the beginning. And because He is God, He is also the end. So you see, we recognize the the preeminence of Christ because of His deity, because He is God. But second is, what Paul says, is that we must recognize His preeminence over the church. Look at verse 18, he says, And He is, meaning Jesus, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In the same way that Jesus is head over creation, is preeminent over creation. And the word that we would use when when we say that He is the head of the body would be the word sovereign. That Jesus is sovereign over creation, but He is sovereign over the church. Now here's what happened. When you trusted in Jesus, if you've repented of your sin and you've put your faith in Christ, you immediately became a part of of what the Bible calls the body of Christ. Not talking about the physical body of Christ, but it's used as as an analogy, as a, a used figuratively. It's a picture of the union that you and I have with Christ. Do you realize that when you became a follower of Jesus, it's not just that you got saved and God has left you out there on your own. It is the fact that once you trusted in Christ, you are unioned with Christ. You become one with Christ. But it is also a description of the unity that we have as the body of Christ, the unity that we have with one another, that we are joined together because of who Christ is, our mutual faith in Him. Now, so when 
one may then ask, well, then why is Jesus the head of the church? Well, look at verse 18. It says, He's the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have preeminence. The word firstborn there is the same word that is used in verse 15. So to be firstborn doesn't mean he was the first one to be raised from the dead, because there were others who were raised from the dead. Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus. He, he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. He raised the son of the widow of Nain. Nain, just to mention a few. So, I mean, there, there were many people who were raised from the dead. But to be firstborn from the dead means that he is firstborn in rank. That he, he is firstborn from the dead because he being raised from the dead was the most significant and the most important event that has ever happened in the history of humanity. Two reasons why. Number one is because everyone else who was ever raised from the dead was going to die again at some point. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he is the only one who would ever be raised from the dead at that point, who would never die again. His is, that's why we call it the resurrection. He has been raised from the dead never to die again. The resurrection of Christ is a permanent resurrection. Number two, His resurrection provides the way for us to have eternal life. Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. Because of His resurrection, each of us as believers will experience a resurrection into eternal life. That's why He's called the firstborn from the dead. He is in rank and the position, the supreme example of what the resurrection is. And because we believe in Him, the same resurrection that Jesus experienced, do you realize, is the resurrection that you and I are going to experience into eternal life. And it's only through Christ that that life is possible. See, this is what distinguishes Christianity and distinguishes Christ from all other religions. You may be kind of wrestling through the various religions that are out there, and there are many that will claim, in fact, about every religion claims, claims that it ought to have preeminence in your life. It ought to be the soul in your life. And you wonder, well, what distinguishes Christianity from all other religion? They all have rules. They all have regulations. Many of them will claim to have a Messiah. They will, they will claim to have someone who saves, saves you from their sin. What distinguishes Christ from all of the other saviors that are out there that claim that they have salvation? It is the resurrection. Because Christ is the only one who's been raised from the dead. See, it's one thing for a man to stand up and say, I can forgive you if you'll follow me. I can give you eternal life that when you die, you'll not die, but you'll live forever. And then he dies and he stays in the grave. That's a rather vain presupposition to make. But only God can say, I will die and I will be raised from the dead. And he dies and he's resurrected because of Christ. You and I share in that. Well... What it says to us is because of who Christ is. Again, when it says that He's the head of the body, He is the firstborn from the dead. What that says to us, those of you that are in the church, that are part of this church, what that says is that Christ 
has to be the head of the church. Not just the church collective, not just the church universal, not just all churches in the body of Christ, but it also boils down to the local church. You say, who, who runs the church? Who is the head of the church? It's got to be Christ. You see, when you're thinking about, and I've been talking about next steps, and you're thinking about, oh, we're going to be calling a pastor, and we're going to be looking at these things. What do we need to do? What, what decisions do we need to come to as a church that we can best prepare the way so that our new pastor can come and have the success that God wants him to have here and can lead our church to become the church that God wants us to be. It is when you as the church recognize that Christ is preeminent over your church. You see, this is not your church. This is not my church. This has got to be Christ's church. And let's be honest, we struggle with that. Because there's a lot of you that this church wouldn't be here if, if you didn't financially support the church. That when this church was built, you may have physically had a part in nailing a nail or, or doing something like that. You have been important. There is an important part that you and your family have had in this church. But what you've got to remember is you wouldn't have the things to give and you wouldn't have the nails to nail if it wasn't for Christ. Y'all with me? And at that point, we've got to decide if this church is going to be the church that God wants us to be, it's got to be the church where Christ is the head of the church. It means that we've got to set aside preference for preeminence. It means we've got to set aside uh, our will and our desires and, and, and who we are as a member of this congregation, acknowledge the preeminence that Christ has over the church, that if He is the Lord, He is first place. In fact, notice what Paul says. He says, in fact, that He should have first place in everything. That in all things, verse 18, that in all things, in everything, He will have preeminence. When we understand the Lordship of Christ, it is that we put Christ first and only over everything that is in our life. He is first place in our families, first place in our marriages, first place in our professions. He is first place in our mission and our ministry. He is first place in matters of the intellect. He is first place in our time, in our love, in our conversation, in pleasure, in eating, in play, in athletics, in what we watch, in art, in music, in worship, in everything. I looked up the word everything in the dictionary. You know what the word everything means? Everything. I'm very simple. You know, I thought, well, there'll be some dynamic description in Webster's. Everything. It means everything. There's not an exclusion from everything. It means everything. And so we take everything that we have and everything that we are, and we give that to Christ and say, Christ, You will be Lord over this. You will have preeminence over this because of Your resurrection, because of who you are as God. Here's the last thing you say. How else do we recognize the 
preeminence of Christ? How, how is it that, that Jesus becomes first and only in my life is that we must recognize His preeminence in salvation? Verse 20. Verse 19, he says, For it pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. He found pleasure in having all the fullness dwell in, in Christ. Uh, that word, uh, Paul's use of the word fullness, he, he uses it sort of as a rebuke of other religions because there were many religions and many false gods of that day and there, there was this, this idea there, there were those false teachers who would use the word fullness to describe the totality of the thousands of lesser gods. And so Paul takes that same word that the false teachers would use to describe the thousands of, of lesser gods that are out there to, dis, to say that Jesus is not fullness as He is a part of the many gods. He is not fullness as He is a part of the others. He is the fullness because He is the one and only. That everything, what that means is that everything that God is, Christ is. That He is the fullness. In fact, Colossians 2.9 says it more explicitly. It says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of God dwells in Him bodily. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Fullness means the totality of, of divine power. Fullness means the totality of the, the attributes of Christ. That He is the whole fullness. That He is the full fullness of God. I like how William Nicholson describes it. He says that Jesus Christ is the exhaustion of God. And then Paul says that this fullness lives in Him. You see, for Jesus to be God and to be all that God is and the fullness of God does not mean that it was a temporary thing. There are some false teachers out there that will tell you that Jesus was merely a man and at His baptism He became God and then right before His death the, the deity left Him. That's false theology. Jesus always has been, always will be God. There is never a time that He was not God, and there was never a time that He was not the fullness of God. That everything that God is, Jesus is and always has been, because the fullness of God lives in Him. And because He's fully God, He then has the power, notice this, to reconcile everything to Himself. Now, here's, here's what that, that verse means there in verse 20. Number one, it means that Christ is going to reconcile creation. We live in a world right now that has been, been touched by evil. You wonder why is it that our, our earth, our world is as it is. All you have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 3. And when Adam and Eve sinned and when sin came upon the world, not only did it affect 
the, the spiritual life of Adam and Eve and the spiritual life of every single human being that has lived on the face of the earth, it is that this earth was affected by that sin. But as much as it was destroyed and altered by sin, you need to understand that Jesus is going to reconcile all of creation to Himself. One day, John the Revelator says, He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. But second, it means that Christ is going to reconcile sinners to Himself. Do you realize, and stay with me on this, you need, you need to grasp this. Do you realize that in the New Testament, that every reference to reconciliation between God and man, it is God who takes the initiative? I want you to think about that. In every single reference in the New Testament that describes reconciliation between God and man, it is God who takes the initiative. And what that's talking about, it describes for us the deep love that God has for each of you. Roman, or, uh, Ephesians 2.16, Romans 10, Romans 5.10 and 11, Romans 11. 15, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, verses 18 through 20. You can look at those verses, and you'll see where, when it comes to, to salvation and sin, that you and I were separated from God, that there is a great gulf between ourselves and God, and there was no way that we could ever cross that gulf. In fact, in Romans 3, Paul says that no one seeks after God. And what that means is, if it's left to our own devices, there's no one because of sin, there's nobody that would choose God. So you know what? God reached down from heaven and He sent His Son Jesus to become a man so that we could understand how God would reconcile us to Him. God took the initiation. God opens the door where He says, Come unto Me. Make that choice to follow Christ, to, to believe in Christ. And so that's an invitation to all of you. If you're not a believer here and you wonder, what does God have to do with me? You understand God took the initiative. God said, I first love you. Why do we, what does John say? We love God. Why? Because He what? First loved us. And because of that, we respond to Him. That He is first in salvation. But then for us as believers, that's why Christ is the priority. See, that's why He's first and foremost, is because salvation is only found in Him. It's not found in religion. It's not found in, in works. It is not found in church membership. You know that salvation is not even found in baptism. And all the things that we do, in a minute we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Salvation is not found as we take the supper together. That's not salvation. Salvation is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And because of what He did for us on the cross, because of His death, because of His resurrection, it is through that that we have eternal life, and because of it, that's why He is preeminent. So here's the question that we've got to answer. We, we've got to decide on this. You, you've got to ask yourself this question. Is Jesus first and foremost in my life? 
Not, does he, does he have prominence in my life? Not, is he important in my life? But is Jesus first and foremost in your life in that He is the one and only? What, what are the things that you struggle with? You see, we're going to have a, a time of invitation before we take the supper, before we take the Lord's Supper and have communion. We're going to have a time of invitation. What are some things that you're wrestling with right now that, you know, you allow that to take prominence over Christ at times? Take time today to say, you know, Jesus, here are, the, here are the things that I struggle with. Here are the things that I try to let be priority. And the commitment that I want to make is not just that you're important to me, not just that you're prominent in me, but that you're preeminent in me. If you're not a believer, it's also saying to you, it's time to realize that salvation, if you want forgiveness of sins... If you want eternal life, it is only found in Jesus. It's not found in religion. It's not found in all these other things. You may be trying out all kinds of stuff. Realize that because Jesus is foremost and preeminent in creation, because He is preeminent in the resurrection, because He is preeminent as God, there is only one possible way for you to have eternal life, and that's through Jesus and Him alone. The next steps. You say, how do we prepare our church to become the church that God wants our church to be? The answer is make sure that in everything you do, that Christ is preeminent. Let me pray for us. We thank you, our Savior Jesus, for what you do for us and what you've done on the cross. As we celebrate this supper together, we celebrate because of what you have done. Though it is a time to look to the past, it is also a time to recognize the future because it is not that you stayed dead on the cross, but it is that you were laid in that tomb and three days later you were raised from the dead. And so we celebrate who you are, Jesus. We give you thanks. We give you praise. And now lead us, motivate us, challenge us that in all things you would be preeminent that you would be first and only. And it's in the name of our Savior Jesus that we pray. Amen. If you are here and you don't know Christ, you say, what do I need to do? I'm going to come and make myself available here at the front. We're going to be led in a, in a song of invitation to only trust Jesus. And as we sing this song of invitation, we call it a song of invitation because we're inviting you to respond. This is the opportunity. The minute we stand and begin to sing, you just slip out in one of these aisles. I'm going to make myself available to you. You come find me and say, Pastor, tell me how I can know Jesus today. How can I have that forgiveness that you spoke about? If you've got questions about it, that's great. Ask the questions that you have. We're in the question-answering business. Let us help you make that decision about following Christ. But let me also challenge those of you who are believers. Where is it in your life that you can see that Christ is not first and foremost? There's a long list of things I gave you. They're in your notes there. Look through those notes. Look through that list and ask yourself the question, is Christ really first in these things? 
And if he's not, take time to go, Jesus, here's where I struggle. Be honest with Jesus. Let me tell you a little something about Jesus. You don't come to confess that so that Jesus will know it. He already knows. You come to confess it to have an honesty in your own heart to begin that path to say, I'm going to get back and be where Christ wants me to be. Our front's an altar. We invite you to come and pray. Uh, Brother Dave's here. Brother Ron, come and, and pray with one of them if you'd like to. Find one of the other deacons in the church. Brother Steele's here. Come pray with him. But pray with somebody. Pray by yourself and say, God, here's what needs to be first in my life. First and only and foremost. Let's stand together. And as we sing this song together, we invite you to come. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. I'm going to let you play through the song again. This a difficult decision to make. This is probably of the five sermons I've done. This is probably the hardest one, the most difficult one. How can I make Christ first in my life? Take time during this last stanza. If you need to come and pray, you come and pray. If you need to talk with someone, come talk with someone. But don't leave here knowing that there are things in your life that you're going to put first over Christ this week because that's where defeat comes. Victory comes when Christ is first and foremost and only. Lead us, and as she plays, if you need to come, you come.